Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors, to out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is Whiskey Wednesday, May 12th, 2021, and you're listening to episode 41, our season two premiere. Today, we speak with Robin Robinson about his life in whiskey and his book, The Complete Whiskey Course, a comprehensive tasting school in 10 classes. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. Formal spirits education, including whiskey education, trails wine education by light years. And among the leading wine certificate issuing organizations, only one, the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, offers spirits certification. Speaking of wine, as a subject of serious and formalized study, its roots lie squarely in the mid-20th century. And today, there are numerous organizations offering graduated training, testing, and certification in wine knowledge and hospitality, plus academic programs granting both undergraduate and graduate degrees in viticulture and winemaking. The formal study of spirits, by contrast, is a spotty affair, consisting largely, though not exclusively, of scattered learn-at-home and pay-to-play operations, and no more than a handful of universities offering specialized training in the science and practice of distilling. Enter the 21st century, and with it, the rise of the Whiskey Club. Whiskey Clubs, at their advent a place for self-professed whiskey geeks seeking spirited camaraderie, now constitute a veritable associational infrastructure for people with a passion for both learning and the water of life. With today's episode, the first of our second season, we introduce the Club Corner, an occasional segment that will spotlight the founders and leaders of whiskey clubs. These exceptional individuals take a dead serious approach to ensuring that their organizations offer an environment conducive to learning and fellowship and produce events that showcase the globality and stylistic diversity of whiskey. Their efforts are tireless, their focus is laser sharp, and the producers of this podcast, both of whom count numerous Whiskey Club presidents and members among their friends and colleagues, salute them. A closely related and relatively recent development is the appearance and proliferation of books that treat spirits seriously and distilling in detail, but are written for the layman. The author of one such book, Robin Robinson, a whiskey sector veteran and the man responsible for The Complete Whiskey Course, a comprehensive tasting school in 10 classes, is today's guest on Spirits of Whiskey. Later in the show, we'll speak with David Donahue and Verdim Perlovsky of the Los Angeles Whiskey and Spirits Guild in our first ever Club Corner segment. But first, we'll speak with Robin Robinson about his whiskey journey, his book, and his thoughts on terroir and provenance. Stay with us. Hey, do you like whiskey, food, and adventure? I do. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard, as in our World of Wheezy segment host here on the podcast, and Whiskey, a Chef's Journey. That's Chef. That's right, the project that started this very podcast. The series stars our very own chef, Louise Leonard, winner of Emmy-winning The Taste on ABC. And explores and connects the worlds of whiskey and food, city by city, country by country. Would you like to see this spirited culinary adventure on a TV near you? Well, you can by helping us finish the pilot episode through our crowdfunding campaign. For more information, including behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and incentives. And to make a pledge, visit our website, whiskeyachefsjourney.com. Or search for our campaign, Whiskey A Chef's Journey, at gofundme.com. That's gofundme.com now. Well, I think it's a cheers to that. <laughs> Let's. Cheers. cheers. Today on Spirits of Whiskey, we welcome Robin Robinson. Robin is known for many things whiskey, but of late, he's perhaps best known as author of The Complete Whiskey Course, a comprehensive tasting school in 10 classes. Widely praised, widely celebrated. Welcome, Robin. Thanks, Philip. Great to be here. Yes, thank you for coming. I started reading this yesterday, and so far, so good. I love it. Lots of fun information in here. So you have a very vast whiskey journey, it sounds. And I would love to hear from the beginning, 
where you were as a child, what did you think you were going to do as a career and how did you get to be the big whiskey guru that yeah, you it's, are? Your journey is downright Homeric. So let's, let's begin at the very beginning. I grew up in a little town called Homestead, Pennsylvania, which is uh, the location of one of the biggest steel mills in the world at the time. So it was a factory town right outside of Pittsburgh. And so whiskey back then was a VO and a sequence VO and an upgrade would be, for example, Canadian club. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when you were a kid, you would sneak into a VFW hall, or if you were like in a wedding at a VFW hall, typically the bartender would say, yeah, yeah, sure. Come in. Yeah, here. Yeah. Let me, yeah. And he would pour <laughs> you a shot of VO or Canadian club and he would call it rye. So I was under the assumption that's what it was. Uh-huh. And yet and, and here you uh, are, you grew up in the home of, of Monongahela. I grew up, and that would never have been. Exactly. And I actually, I grew up on the banks of the Monongahela mm-hmm. River. Mm-hmm. That's actually where Homestead is. Homestead's on the banks of the mm-hmm. Monongahela River. So none of us knew anything about it. Whiskey was just something that your parents drank and that you try to sneak away from them if you really wanted to get drunk. That's pretty much what, what whiskey was. But I was in the restaurant business from a very early age, from high school uh, all the way through college and then beyond. And that's kind of where I started getting more sophisticated about what spirits were. But my first luxury spirits were cognacs and armagnacs, right? Because that's because at, at the time I'm growing up, no one's drinking whiskey. Now it's becoming like an old man's mm-hmm. drink. By the time I got to New York, I was pursuing an acting career. And one of the things that you do when you pursue an acting career is you pursue <laughs> every other career to actually make money while you're pursuing acting. Right. You know, that's unfamiliar to no one who did that. And I started doing these private parties all over New York City in the 1980s. And a friend of mine called me up and he goes, he goes, I overbooked myself. Are you free on Saturday night? And I said, yeah, I am. And he goes, okay, you've got the best Scottish accent I've ever heard. And here's the deal. You're going to lead a party of 40 people at a private home in a tasting, a dinner with a pairing of single malt Scotch whiskeys. And this is about 1985. Oh, and wow. I said, okay, number one, how much are you paying me? And it was like this much amount of money. And I said, okay. And I said, and then what's a single malt scotch whiskey and he goes don't worry about that he goes you've heard of scotch i said yeah i know what scotch is everybody knows what scotch is he goes yeah it's a different kind of scotch so the guy who's holding the party will tell you they give me a name they call me actually angus little john m-b-e so now not not only am i angus little john scotch whiskey distiller but i'm an mbe now i gotta figure out what the fuck is an mbe so now I'm an actor, so of course I create the whole back history, and he drops off these pamphlets and magazines because you know, there's no internet. And right. for the next three or four days, here I'm, 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 I'm practicing my, my, my brogue here. <laughs> and of course, the only Scotsman that I'd ever heard at that point was, of course, Commander Scott on Star Trek. <laughs> I'd never heard, so I'm just doing my best job of. You know, imitating him while I'm memorizing all this stuff. I show up at this place and I'm nervous as hell. And I had come up with a couple strategies. I said, number one, from my reading, it seems to me that Scots are a prickly type of a personality. So I, I'm going to have an attitude, right? So if I have an attitude, then fewer people are going to feel comfortable questioning me. So that was like number one strategy. Cause I figured if someone sees through this ruse, this is going to be the longest, most embarrassing four hours that I'm going to sit through. And then the second strategy was, I still remember the lineup, but we started out with a, a 10-year-old Glenn Libet, and then we went to a 12-year-old Glenn Morangy. That's when they were still making 12-year-olds. And then we went to a Lafroig, and then we were ending the evening with a 25-year Macallan. So the host had to explain to me what that meant. I had no idea what 25-year Macallan was, and he gave me like a cognac reference point for its, its quality and everything like that. And so I said, as I'm reading through the material, I said, do you have an 18-year-old there at the club? And he goes, yeah. I I said, take that bottle of 18-year-old Macallan and pour it into a container of some sort, keep it back in the kitchen, and then fill it up with iced tea. But just take a little bit of whiskey and pour it in the top of the bottle. And then I want you to set that right in front of my place setting at the dinner table. So the strategy there was uh, the more I would drink, then the more irritable that I would get. And if the, if I'm irritable, then less people are going to be inclined to actually question anything that I say. And throughout <laughs> the entire evening, I drained three quarters of a bottle of iced tea in front of everybody. And we went through the entire evening. And now I realize I've got these people in the palm of my hand. And that allowed me just to riff 
I made up shit. I had no idea what I was talking <laughs> about. But I've got people going with me and all these, and you know, what, my late 20s, early 30s, all these people are in their 50s. And these are the, the, the power brokers of Wall Street and their wives, right? That's the kind of crowd I'm with. And we're having dinner and I'm drinking this. I'm dropping F-bombs. I'm making up crazy ass stories. And at the very end between, before we do the 25-year McCallum, I make up just the most absurd and obscene story about how McCallum whiskey got oh, started. Lord. Back in the <laughs> Back in the 15th century, it was barley farmers and Clyde McCallan couldn't get his barley to, to germinate. It would always just end up being a wet splotch of grains and he'd have to throw it out. And one night he was going to go over to Angus Belvenies. And so he just puts the water into the steep and then takes off and gets snookered on Angus Belvenies of moonshine and comes back to his farm stable and looks at, at the steep and it looks as if it hasn't germinated. It looks as if it's just going to be as it always was. And in the mornings, you have to throw it out. So he you know what? He takes a leak right into that goddamn pot oh, God, God. and he goes to bed. And he, in the morning, his sons jump on the bed and says, oh, pot, pot, you gotta see, come see, come see. And they go in. And throughout the entire evening, I kept stressing this um, concept of the Scots are a people who are bound by custom and tradition. So in Angus Balvenie's mind of the 15th century, um, he had to piss in that pot every time that they threw water in there. So after everybody would go to bed, he'd get up at four o'clock in the morning, he'd urinate into the vat, and lo and behold, that that barley ended up making the best whiskey in the valley. So he passes this on to his sons and his sons pass it on to their sons. And this is the McCallan secret. They finally get into about the age of reason, the 17th century. And they got to realize, oh, we can't be doing this here. Pissing to the pot's no good. But they have to do something to honor Clyde McCallan. So they come up with a substitute when the malt master would soak the barley in water. He would spit into the vat out of honor and respect for the, the custom of Clyde McCallan. And that practice went on until the 1960s, until the British, and I'm making all this shit up as I go. The British government came into the 1960s and imposed these industry-wide hygiene. So they forbid them doing that. I said, but if you go to the McAllen distillery today, right next to the steep, you'll see a, a, a cuspidor, a spittoon. And when the malt master throws that water down onto the barley for the first time, he will then spit into there out of honor and respect for the memory of Clyde McAllen. So I want you all to stand up and everybody stands up. They raise their glass of this 25-year-old McCallan, which I had never tasted before in my life until this moment. And I say, okay, here's the traditional Scottish toast, fly the firth, which again is just words I made up. And I had everybody spit over their left shoulder out of uh, respect for Clyde McCallan. And then we drank it. And the next morning I went out and I bought my first bottle <laughs> of single malt 12-year-old McCallan for, at, at, for 1995. Mm. So who knew? We've been in the dark all these years the secret to scotch whiskey's success is pissing off the barley <laughs> So there yeah. you are. Don't do And that. all these people believe you is what I think is funny. So there you are like, at the dawn of single malt, the single malt rebirth, 1985, because yeah. the Renaissance began in the mid 80s. You are channeling James Dewan, and you've never tasted a single malt scotch. <laughs> Being an actor, I always knew this, that if you pretend that you're an expert, other people will agree with oh, you. Oh, fake and it, fake it till you make good it. At pretending, fake it till you make it, right? Yeah. So that's always, I mean, to this day, I, I decry the bevy of quote unquote experts in whiskey. I don't really care who you're from. And I've... I know and have met and have talked with some of the top whiskey making people in the world. And there are no mm -hmm. experts. It's a, a fatuous term. And so, yeah, but that's what kind of convinced me that evening to these poor people. I, I lit them up. <laughs> for you. So was that like a turning point where you said I could be a, a fake whiskey guy <laughs> instead of a, an onstage actor? I how did you... <laughs> I um I actually left. Oh, you gotta remember, th there's no such thing as a as the alcohol business in my universe. I actually got into the early days of technology, and I actually left. I moved out to L.A. and I, as an actor, in about within two and a half, three years, I abandoned my career, and I started picking up gigs, teaching people how to use PCs and DOS and Lotus One Two Three and and early word processing, and then I got a job with Skadden Arps, which is a third largest law firm in the United States. 
and uh, mm-hmm. on their network support team in their LA office downtown. And then I was called by a guy who I used to temp for at an ad agency called Asher and Gould. And this is a guy named Bruce Silverman. Bruce Silverman gave me my first real job in the industry. He hired me back and I became director of information technology at Asher mm-hmm. Gould. And that kind of launched my tech career after that couple of years there. And then I actually, I went on into Silicon Valley firms. So anyway, I leave there and then I moved back to, to the New York City area because I got hired by a Silicon Valley company to actually be what was called a customer success manager. So what happened was everywhere I would go, I would try to find this thing about scotch whiskey and they were very difficult to find back then you just find mostly blends one of the biggest collections that i had was here in new york i used to used to work as a waiter at a place called francis tavern which is like you know the oldest existing tavern in the united states where george washington gave his farewell address and i used to take a walk up the street to a brand new place that opened up called the north star inn where they had all of these scotch whiskeys I had never seen before. So I would come up every so often on the afternoon after my shift, and I would just point at something. And I said, what's that? Let's taste that. And you know, over a, a couple months, all the bartenders got to know me. says, oh, man, we just got this in, and you should try this. That's the best so way to learn. That's yeah, just tasting. We had no preconception of it. Of course, I didn't understand how to pronounce any of these Lafroy eggs and, <laughs> and things like that. So, yeah, it was great. And then when I got into technology as a salesperson, I had a, an expense account. And so now... Oh, there you go. <laughs> we were doing a, a bid on business for the St. Paul companies out of uh, St. Paul. And my manager and I, who, who he shared this fanaticism with me, we were going to meet down in the lobby in the St. Paul bar in the St. Paul hotel. And I get a call in my room and he's excitedly telling me, he says, get down here now. And I get down into the bar and it's the first time in my life I'd ever seen a wall of whiskey. And that's, that was the back of the bar. It was all backlit and it was like, this was the land of Oz. (laughs) And so, yeah, really. And and it was the color version too. (laughs) (laughs) This wasn't the black and white nightmare. Yeah. So that was it. So I was a fanboy, and and then in the 90s, I started going to distilleries. So I, I booked a, a trip to Scotland with my family, and and I dragged them. Uh, we were staying out on Sky, so obviously I went to I went to Talisker, and and this was great because I get there. And the guard doesn't want to let me in. He says, oh, it's late. But I, we just, I drove here from the United States. And so we, I get to the side door and I knock on the side door and a lady comes to the side door. She says, oh, what do you want? <laughs> I go, and I got my nine-year-old, my wife and my nine-year-old daughter with me. And I said, could, can, can I look around? Oh, you want a tour? Uh, well, yeah, okay. And she all right, come in here, but don't touch me. <laughs> and... so so she's got a couple people in there and they're germans so um i joined them on the tour and they're and this is the first time i'm i'm seeing this is this is oz right here my eyes are wide open the sounds the smells the the visuals of those big pot stills and and what she's telling me this in a thick highland brogue and it's just all magical what had happened was 10 years before that i had my first bottle of talisker in my life this is in the late 80s and i was taken with it that i wrote a letter to mr talisker on an old typewriter and i sent it off to the address that was on the label which was the importer okay so i send this off about two months later i get a letter back from the talisker distillery and Ian McDonald, and, and you can even hear the brogue, oh, Mr. Robinson, we, you are great. <laughs> I'm glad to have you a fan here, and we can't wait to come and visit us here on the Isle of Skye. Here I am, 10, late, 10 years later, in the Isle of Skye. And at the end of the tour, I'm in the, I'm in the, the gift shop where, obviously, I'm going to buy a bottle, and they're giving us a dram to taste. And, and I fish this letter out of my pocket. I show the lady, I said, you know, I, I wrote this letter 10 years ago, and this guy wrote, Is, does he still work here? 
She goes, oh, yeah, it's out of Maya. It's a production manager here. And she t- leaves. And about five minutes later, Mr. McDonald comes in. He's waving the letter. Oh, which one of you is Mr. Robinson? <laughs> and Adia, we've been waiting 10 years for you to be here. It's just everything that you want to hear when you go visit a place. So all these marvelous lies, right? So, you know, <laughs> so we're talking about the whiskey and we got the Germans involved. And he goes, oh, you haven't tasted nothing yet. And he, we leave and we walk into the dunnage into the warehouse and i'm thinking this is a warehouse full of whiskey what's again none of this i've got no background in any of this and and then that smell that you get in the warehouse and of course it's a warehouse and it's dank and i'm thinking isn't this kind of typically the place where people come to actually be axe murdered or something like that and we go over to a, a keg and he's pointing this out and he's talking about this and he's telling everything and finally he's got a cask that's sitting off the rack and he now i'm looking at here's a bung puller and he takes this thing he pulls the bung out and then he takes the thief and all this stuff some stuff i'm seeing for the very first time and he gives us all a glass and he pulls the thief out and he's pouring it in our glasses and it's getting all over our hands and he's laughing like crazy and he's telling us to rub it in. And so we're rubbing his stuff in our hands and we're drinking this whiskey. And I thought, I said, I'm in. I was just so bowled over by that experience. It never left me. That was the point. And that was the point. That was really the point where I said, this is going to be a part of my life mm-hmm. somehow. And then. In the 2000s, I started up an early blog called onemalt.com, and I had a, a tasting group of friends here in northern New Jersey who I just, they were sick and tired of listening to me talk about Scotch whiskey all the time. So they just, we just decided to create a group and we end up calling ourselves the knuckleheads of Scotch. And I even, <laughs> I profile us a little bit in the book. There's a little, a little excerpt. And it just so happens that a very old friend of mine, his wife and my wife have been friends for Jesus almost 40 years. And he happens to be one of the most influential and powerful people in the liquor industry in the United States. And I don't know any of this. I just know this is what he does. He's a distributor. I have no fucking idea what that means. And for years, he used to tell me, he goes more about Scotch whiskey than anybody that works for me. And you're in the wrong industry. One day you're going to get tired of selling technology and then you and I are going to have a talk. (laughs) And I say, yeah, who the fuck makes a living in the liquor industry? Pour me another glass of wine. And one day in 2008, they don't live too far away from where from we do. And we were over at a, a birthday party for his wife. And uh, at the end of the evening, we kind of, uh, this guy and I, I'm going to prevent from saying his name because he doesn't like to have his name uh, mentioned. He and I sat down and he goes, okay, I'm going to lay something out for you. You tell me if you want to pick it up. And he lays out this idea of what he said was a, a, something called a brand ambassador, which he considered. And this guy's third generation liquor now. So, you know, he's coming from that perspective. He considered the brand ambassador to be the most mm-hmm. role in the industry. And he gave me a history of what brand ambassadors used to be like back in the 50s and the 60s during the big Seagram's days. And he goes, right now that these are mostly presentational people and educational people and things like that. But he said, if you put a sales guy in that role, somebody who understood sales and knows how to sell and understands the mechanics and the the, the methodologies behind sales and could still do the, the talking and the educating and the fun part, he goes, that guy could change the industry. And I just said, yeah, I mean, that sounds to me like exactly how I want to get into. If I'm going to change a career, I'm going to change it for that Mm -hmm. reason, that I can make Mm -hmm. a difference Mm -hmm. and I can find something that really was, I was really passionately, and I'm still a passionate technologist. I I love technology, but this was hitting me somewhere differently. So that's how I started with Compass Bars. And that's, that was my interest. And and you worked with a legend, John Glazer. And I had met John the year before and, and I was so impressed with him. And I was so impressed with the whiskeys that I had a big blog piece about them. And we would always do single malts in our tasting because that's pretty much what we knew. And and one day I brought one of his blends in and everyone said, what the fuck is that a blend? I said, man, let's taste this. And everyone was like blown away. But the reason I went to go work for John is because this particular individual had a minority stake in John's business. So 
That's how he uh-huh. set me up uh-huh. with that. I gave him my presentation. He wanted me to, to set up, to put this in front of Diageo and Pernod Ricard. I said, that sounds great, but I know that I'm not a type of a person that does well in big corporations. When I was an actor, I was a lone wolf out there. When I was in technology, I worked for Silicon Valley startups. So my mentality is always with the small guy, with the guy who's really running on passion and not a whole lot of resources and have elegant solutions to things. And and that's the thing that kind of turns me on. And that's what I loved about Compass Box. So it was a match. It was, a, we were really well matched mm-hmm. for that. And you did that yeah. until what years? You did that for six years? About six and mm-hmm. a half years. Yeah. And I, at 15 is when we decided to okay. go different ways. And it was a good time for both of us. John wanted to do some other things with Compass Box that I just didn't feel were really going to be right for me to uh-huh. be part of. And at the same time, I was now starting to be bowled over by this, what I considered to be the next moving force in any industry, which was the rise of America. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. I had gotten to know every one of these. I'm out on the streets, I'm out on the bars, I'm out at the festivals, and I got to know all of these guys, the Arenzos and Lance Winters mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Todd Leopold. Then Paul Letko came and then all of these people. And I'm tasting this stuff and they just keep coming yeah, out of the woods. Yeah, like sure. I meant, like I, I write about them in uh, chapter four in the American Craft. I said, it's, the revolution will not be televised. They just showed up. <laughs> but it, but it will be drunk. Door, but they will be drunk, <laughs> yeah. They just, this is the most exciting thing I've ever seen, and I want to be part of that. So that's what sort of got me thinking about what kind of value can I provide mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. And the value that I could provide was as I was not just a Compass Box brand ambassador, but I was this hybrid role of sales manager, brand ambassador, event planner, brand manager, you name it. Like I was the North American mm-hmm. guy, 30 four different markets mm-hmm. I work. Between that and the sales methodology that, that I learned as a salesman in technology, I brought an understanding of route to market and starting with the narrative and then going through methodologies and, and strategies for sales and marketing. So that's when I realized, okay, this is what I can bring to them. That would be of value mm-hmm. to them. And uh, so that's the mainstay of my business. The, the third leg on the stool is what I call whiskey tainment. Those are you know, classes and corporate events and, and, and mm-hmm. fun stuff, mm-hmm. which is it should yeah, so fun. Hence and, Whiskey Smackdown? Yeah. And, well, Whiskey Smackdown, I actually started back when I was at Compass Box. So uh, it was the first oh. year I proposed it to the woman who was running the, the planning events at Astor Center. And I said, I'd be more than willing to do a, a Whiskey 101 class for you if you don't have anybody that does that. She goes, we don't have one. I said, I'll start it. So it started out as, as Whiskey 101. And then I eventually morphed it to what I called Smackdowns which was, it was a contrast and compare between two different styles. So my first one was bourbon versus scotch. The second one was Irish versus Japanese. And then I did world whiskey apocalypse and then a... You know, a, a craft whiskey feud. You know, I had all these kind of you know, goofy metaphors. But that class ran for 11 years. And I think there were maybe 20 classes where I didn't sell mm-hmm. them out. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah. It was incredibly successful. And and that's where the book okay. came from. All right. Now, the class yeah. migrated online, did it not? Not a class. But what I had done about four years ago was I adapted the class to a master class that I toured around and did whiskey uh-huh. festivals. So instead of getting one whiskey through the prism of a whiskey representative from that brand, I wanted to give the entirety of it. So I created the idea of the story of whiskey, 60 minutes of bad stand-up comedy punctuated by drinking. And that's the kind of, that was a hook. So again, those classes used to sell out. I remember Jared. And, and was your name Angus Little? What was it? Uh, yeah, honest to God, I should have just kept it there. You know, <laughs> every once in a while, Angus will come out here and he'll present himself. That- They'll just shake their heads and say, just don't quit your day job. (laughs) I mean, this is my day job. But uh, but that went really well. So I did a one-hour version of it, and it's six whiskeys, and each one from each of the five top whiskey-making countries Mm -hmm. in the world, and then a sixth one that represents the rest of the world. And, and so I've got six sponsors for that. And wow. after post COVID, uh, then I adapted that and that's, what's actually online okay. right now. So it's, so the book, it is a deep, 
deep, richly detailed tome. Typically, the journey to publication for something like that is is lengthy and arduous. Yeah. Tell us that tale. Okay, so the book that I thought I was going to write, I think was going to be my second or third book. Okay, so this book came literally out of nowhere. After one of my classes in 2016, an editor, a guy came up and introduced himself to me as an editor for Sterling Epicure. And he said, we've done, we did the PDT cocktail book. We did Clay Risen's American Whiskey, Bourbon and Rye. And we also did Kevin Zraeli's Windows on the World, a complete wine course. And we're looking for someone to write that equivalent uh-huh. in whiskey, you know, would you be interested? So we started a discussion. It was a long, it took a year. In the meantime, I got an agent. We finally contracted what this was going to be. They own the concept of the complete blank course, because there is also a complete beer okay. course as well. Um, mm-hmm. A guy named Josh Bernstein. So the idea of putting it into classes was that th- that's their framework. It was up to me to, to fill that. So I created all the content. Okay. So the template was pre-existing. Uh, I, the template you filled was pre-existing. It. And, and, and so was the... Uh, <laughs> it's, it's like American Idol and all those things where there's a template from Britain <laughs> and then we take it and do the same thing. And get yeah, it different. It's like Sanford and mm-hmm. Son. Exactly. Yeah, it all started mm-hmm. in the UK. And so that was the beginning of it. And, but the, the restriction of, they gave me seven months to write it. And I said, are you fucking kidding me? You want me to write the whole book on whiskey in seven months? So I traveled, I went from Japan to India, to Scotland, Ireland, Kentucky, Canada. I ran out of time before I can get to France. I visited so many places and talked to so many people. What um, a terrible job. It sucked. And I mean, it yeah. sounds so boring. I yeah. just can't even. <laughs> So I I came back and wrote and I handed in my manuscript and my editor calls him up and he goes, so Robin, I have been in this industry for a long time and I have had authors hand in a manuscript that would have 10,000 too many words. And I've had authors that hand in manuscript that would be 10,000 too few words. I've never had an author that handed in a manuscript that was three times what you're contracted for. So I was contracted <laughs> to put 40,000 words into a book. I handed in 150,000 words <laughs> Wow! because no one told me, actually he told me, he goes, and that's the last time I ever tell an author, don't worry about editing yourself. <laughs> right? So he goes, do you realize how much editing this is going to take? I said, that's your job. He goes, no, <laughs> because you went ahead through your agent and you ensured that your voice was going to be the last voice to be heard in the book. Because the thing that I did not want, because I own, I think, 25 books on whiskey. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that maybe 20... Two of them are almost unreadable, right? Because they are these dry collection of facts that just don't do anything to really get me excited. So I did not want to write that book. So I made sure that my voice was in it. And since that, I was going to be the one to do the editing. I worked with another editor on that and it took us another seven months. And so that was a great learning exercise for me as a writer. It really exercised a lot of discipline that I didn't know that I had. It taught me about editing. It taught me about writing. It taught me about being concise. And then it taught me all that stuff. So what's in there is the distillation. Nice. nice. (laughs) So did you have enough material left over that you could do another book? Well, actually, I'm repurposing that, and I've got a series of articles that Nino at the Whiskey Wash has been nice enough mm-hmm. to publish for me. So I've got a series of articles that I'm right that I've written up there. What I did was I got all of the breadth in the book. I didn't get a lot of the depth. And thank you for saying that it actually there, there was a lot of depth Indeed. in there. One of my favorite aspects of the book is the global coverage of whiskey making. Whiskey drinkers are now becoming accustomed to the fact that India produces some great whiskeys. Australia produces some Mm -hmm. great whiskeys. Still, there are places where that are still surprising people. Mexico. And this is, can you speak to that about the globality? And again, not just those places that people recognize, but places like Mexico. Yeah. Oh man. To me, that's really where the excitement's at. And I think it's actually going to come down to a fist fight between France and India. France, of course, is where distillation for alcohol was Mm -hmm. born. 
This goes back now over, you know, 1500 years. In France is pretty much where they took that esoteric knowledge from their, the Moorish mm-hmm. invaders and then eventually transferred that into... Like, we have them to thank for brandy. Cognac, Calvados. Yeah, any type of it all came from there. With that... Nobody really had, a lot of these places didn't really have a, a whiskey heritage. They had distillation right. heritage, but they didn't have a whiskey. Really much belonged to the British Isles, Ireland mm-hmm. and Scotland. It's like the, right. the center. Of the migrated to the U.S. From there. Migrated mm-hmm. to the U.S., exactly. So now when you see what's going on, and one of the things I talk about in the book is that Scotland is the spiritual godfather of the rest mm-hmm. of the world. The rest of the world is utilizing the idea of, of barley-based mm-hmm. distillate as opposed to other mm-hmm. grains and using it in a single a single malt form, so 100% mm-hmm. barley. It's only when you get into the United States and Canada where you start mixing different grains together. It's either corn or rye over here in mm-hmm. North America. And that has just created, in the past 20 years, absolute, it's, it's as exciting on the world level as as it was here in the United States on the craft level. And it's essentially all these are just craft, they're just craft distilleries being opened in far mm-hmm. places. So when I was in India, I, I was at Paul John and I spent uh, a day with Michael D'Souza, who is their distiller there and, and just amazing guy. He's a wonderful guest. And, and Michael is much more of a technical mm-hmm. guy. But but Michael told me something that was just, it's one of these things that, it, again, it got into the book and it just stuck in my head. He said, India is about 15 years ahead of the rest of the world in distillation technology. Uh-huh. And that's because what IMFL is, right? India made foreign liquor, which is what passes for yeah. whiskey. It often has a India. cane base. Right. It's, it's not what it purports to glasses. be. It, exactly, right? But for, from the Indian perspective, it is. And all I have to do is stick a Scotsman on, on the label and they're, they're good to go. And that's McDowell's, right? McDowell's and Officer's Choice are like the two uh-huh. biggest selling whiskeys worldwide. And nobody in the Western world would actually consider them whiskey. However, in order to get that distillate from that dirty molasses base, and they're pressing this from all kinds of God knows places, they developed a very sophisticated five-column multi-pressure distillation protocol. Now, one of the reasons is because India is a big biofuel industry. So these biofuel distilleries can also then actually convert and make this IMFL, right? So from a technology perspective, they are far and ahead. So they know how to get every last milligram of sugar out of Pagas. Absolutely. Now, to counter that, he said, but up until 20 years ago, we didn't know what a bad congener mm-hmm. was, which means that they had no real sense of quality from a organoleptic perspective, no organoleptic quality. From a technology perspective, you're absolutely right. Every last molecule is going to be extracted and used. But from a taste perspective, they have no history of that. When you think about that, all, now you actually have like Radico Kaitan, who uh, is who makes Rampur. They're a huge, that's one of the largest biofuel companies in India. Root goes back to the 1940s making IMFL. Paul John is has a, a huge IMFL. All these guys now, because they have now been adapted to the understanding and to the organoleptic perspective of Western tastes, making the leap is not going to be that difficult. Now, contrast that with France is maybe, what, the world epicenter of organoleptic high point? This is where cuisine really hit its artful top point. And they come from early distillations of eau de vies and brandies and things like that. So they have the flavor perspective there. And now the last that I heard is that I believe there's something like 21 or 22 brand new grain only Mm -hmm. distilleries opened up in France in Uh the past 10 years. Not just the conversions from the, like the Charente, like a a day to act. It's exploding all over Western and Northern Europe. And even some of these distilleries are making American-style spirits. Yes. And the other thing is this. The little solid device that you carry in your pocket, hold in your hand, was the other thing. So we now actually have instant internet that gives us the insight. 
So it's not calling up back when, God bless his soul, Jim Swan was still alive and making an appointment to get Jim Swan over to actually have a confab with you in Taiwan to actually you know, to start up Cavalon. Now, a lot of that information is now available on resources online. And so it makes perfect sense that the world gets smaller through through distillation. So it's right. exciting. It's so exciting. Oh, my God. It's just, I think it's a fantastic. smaller world through distillation. I like that. I like that. Can we talk terroir? Full disclosure, we soon will interview Rob Arnold, who, of course, penned a book titled The Terroir of Whiskey. I've had the good fortune of hearing your presentation on terroir, and I I will say that you won me over. But let's talk about terroir and terroir versus provenance. Yeah, I got two pages on terroir in the book. I had to fight for those two pages because I had to convince the editor that this was an important (laughs) subject. He didn't get it. And, and so the five pages that I had written got still down yeah, with not with, with a sense of provenance down to the two pages. So here's my argument. And I use this, I, I put a graphic in the book as well to actually illustrate this. Which, which was, page um, are these so I can flip to? This here. is in the first, it's in the uh, class one, first class. Okay. Yeah. For, uh, first chapter. And you'll see on the right hand side, you'll see the steps for wine making and the steps for whiskey making. The word terroir literally means from the French of the earth or from the earth. Mm-hmm. So so the argument that I can stand in a, a vineyard and, and taste the wine that came from the grapes that were grown in this ground based on the idea of sun and slope and mineral content. And that's why we have like different grades of Bordeaux. Prevailing winds is another element. And prevailing winds, exactly. Right. Amount of rainfall, mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah. So because what we're doing when we're making wine is we're really going through one real chemical transformation which is taking that sugar and having it ferment into mm-hmm. alcohol. So once yeast introduced that, it ferments into alcohol, and then maybe we'll age it. it not necessarily have to, but maybe mm-hmm. we will. And, and then you can drink that, and the connection can be made, even though it is a very romantic notion. Now let's contrast whiskey. The, the word terroir now is being applied over to whiskey. And quite honestly, I, I, I pointed back to Mark Rainier, who was a wine negociant and also was a whiskey negociant. And he bought Brooklady, opened Brooklady up to everyone's fanfare, rightly so. And he brought this concept over to Jim McEwen one of the greatest marketing brilliant guys in, mm-hmm. in the whiskey industry and right. star of the water of life documentary and star of the water of life documentary yeah and so yeah so they got behind this whole idea of tail it was all going to be about isla so now it starts right there and now everybody starts picking up on the tailwa thing and now i'm seeing tailwa about this tailwa and that tailwa now it's tailwa about the the peat now it's tailwa about the the warehouse now it's tailwa about the grain it's like how many tailwa can you have how many tailwa can you put into <laughs> so now it's actually starting to be absurd and then when you start to really look at the details of what happens in whiskey making, you are taking a fermented mash of grains into a pot that is a metal pot that is specifically chosen because copper has a catalytic effect on the end result there. It's going to actually make a change. Then you heat it up under pressure in a metal pot, but in order to get out of that pot, it's forced to interact with that metal, which we've learned that over time, it's essentially from a microscopic level, scraping the inside of that still. It's scraping the copper out of there as it transforms itself from one life source, which is a liquid, into a gas and then back into a liquid and then back into a gas and back into a liquid again. And then as soon as you do that ends your terroir argument right there. I was the guy that stayed awake in chemistry <laughs> class when we did Well, we need right? more people who stay awake I, in civics class. That's my, that's actually my podcast. So I'll have you okay. my podcast. We'll, we'll, we'll be happy to. But yeah, but that's, so that, that's the beginning of the argument right there. Okay. As soon as you do that, as soon as you cook under high pressure is really where that argument ends. So if you look at any of the data that comes out of like the Scotch Whiskey Testing Institute, or if you look at even at any of the whiskey wheels that are available to you up online, anywhere you want to go, you start to see the presence of chemical compounds that are now in that whiskey that weren't there in the ferment. 
They weren't there because that was the whole idea, right? So now you're creating this whole range of chemicals and chemical compounds and congeners that didn't exist. And those are the things that we actually do the evaluation of whiskey on. So in order to actually go to that and then come back and say grain, which is, remember, think about what what has to happen to grain. You just don't, you don't press grain to get its juice, do you? Uh -uh. No. No, you've got to explode it. And in the case of barley, you've got to take it through a malting process. You have to explode that stuff. The grinding, look how important the grinding is to get to actually the right proportions of husk and grist to actually ends up being a big part of the flavor, the, the heat of the water, how many, how many sparges you do, all of that. And that's even before you get it into the pot in order to actually put a yeast in there. And then it's what kind of yeast and how long is the ferment and is it is there a cooling aspect of it? All of that. And we haven't even gotten into the pot to actually cook it. If when you start looking at that, the word terroir starts to make, it starts to become absurd. And that's when you realize this really is all marketing. And and here's why. Because I'm the guy on the street and I'm the guy that goes into the stores and I count all the different faces of whiskey that are on the shelves. And what we're trying to do is trying to create differentiation. I get that. I, I understand that. So I can understand where the word terroir starts to develop because, frankly, marketing is lazy. And marketing is a lazy <laughs> part of, of, of the whole structure. And most marketers who come out and, and start working in this industry, quite honestly, it was soap and paper towels or whiskey. I'll pick whiskey. Many of them never meet customers. They're not out there. They get data in. They do psychological profiles. They create demographics. I get it. I know what they do. And now they've got this word that comes out here. And now someone's telling me now that we actually have scientists that are going to prove this, right? And that's when I realized this is some hokum, smokum bullshit. Let me ask you this. If the definition is that the environmental conditions, especially soil and climate, couldn't you say that the environmental conditions of making whiskey would be the, the big copper pot that it's being boiled in and could be? the way that it's being exploded and grinded instead of squished. That's That's environmental. You're absolutely correct. And that's why the word provenance is the correct word. I I get what they're trying to do. They're just using the wrong word. Provenance is all of the unique factors that happen in order to get that whiskey into that Mm -hmm. glass. And there are multitudes of them. And every one is completely different from every other distillery. That's provenance. And to me, that's how you prove the uniqueness of your product is by exploiting that idea. Logically, this extends to all other spirits. Every, including if, if brandy. Because a lot of people will hear that anti-terror argument and say, oh, but brandy. Or, or I hear it in mm-hmm. scale sure. too, right? Of They're misapplying it. As soon as you cook a fermented mash in a container under pressure, you've obliterated your terroir mm-hmm. argument. And it's now mm-hmm. Right. And I'll tell you what, I was so happy to hear that Nicole Austin, and also Todd, and, and quite honestly, and these are people I've got huge amounts of respect for both Todd Leopold and Nicole Austin both agree with mm-hmm. me on this and both of them would be people I would consider outside of the mainstream and, and Nicole has been with us twice now and uh, both yeah, wonderful yeah. conversations cocktails what do you like to yeah. drink cocktails oh, yeah. I tell you what I like the rye version of the Boulevardier best the other one that I like is the Mamie Taylor which hmm. is essentially a Moscow mule made with blended scotch mm. whiskey yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to try that. Yeah. So the Now, did you also do it in the Moscow Mule Cup? When that was available. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that wasn't always available. But when it was available, yeah. All, and, and then it's even better. A, a summer refresher? Oh, my God. Whiskey highballs are, are fabulous. Yeah. Robin, you've enjoyed and, and continue to navigate quite the journey. What can I say? It's been life. And I highly recommend the book for those who haven't read it. I've read uh, a few pages out of each chapter so far. Yeah. Um, a complete whiskey course, a comprehensive tasting school in 10 classes by Robin Robinson, published by Sterling Epicure. What a what an achievement. Yes, it's a huge achievement. It's a great book. And for those of you who do not have it and would like to try to win it, Robin has graciously given us a digital copy to give away. So check out our website. At the top of the page, there's an enter to win button. Click it and good luck. Oh, my Lord. What, a, what an Robin, interview. Thank you, so thank you sir.
Hey guys, I can't tell you. I, I'm honored to be a guest on, on your on your podcast. So I honored to have appreciate you. Appreciate it, and, and this very I, honored to have you. you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Club Corner is up next. Stay with us. Spirits of Whiskey explores the wide world of whiskey through high-profile and out-of-the-way makers, blenders, writers, ambassadors, innovators, and pioneers. And we've been traveling the world virtually to bring these people and their whiskey journeys to you. We realize just how many great stories we've put aside to share with you at a later date. And that date is here. Spirits of Whiskey is offering access to its new VIP content page to loyal listeners and whiskey lovers who want more. And when it comes to whiskey, who doesn't want more? For as little as 99 cents a month, you can have access to videos related to topics discussed on past podcasts, as well as our new series, The Malting Floor. Sign up now to become a supporter at anchor.fm slash spirits hyphen of hyphen whiskey. That's whiskey with an E. Click on the support button and select the contribution level that's right for you. Once you've submitted your payment information, just visit our website, spiritsofwhiskey.com, to create your personal VIP access account. We can't wait to see you in the VIP lounge. Join us. Hi, guys. Welcome to our very first Club Corner. Today, we have David and Vadim, who are our guests from our very first club on the show, which originally, when I joined the club, was called Los Angeles Bourbon and Whiskey Society. We're going to be changing it to some name that's going to fit, I think, with our expansion and our growth. But yes, the Los Angeles Bourbon and Whiskey Society is how we started. Great. Now, David, you are the president of this club. Correct. Correct. And did you found the club? And if so, how did you come up with the original name to start with? It was with a group of guys that we were getting together through a mutual friend who was working at Pavilions Burbank, um, Gerald Gates. And he brought us together. We started hanging out doing bottle shares. And we decided that we should get a group together. We should have a board of directors. We got some people together. I was nominated as president. And I've had that role since inception. When was um, inception? June 2019. Okay. Actually, June 7th is when, actually, Inception is when I call when we created the Facebook page. Okay. And did you get any pushback from anybody saying bourbon and a whiskey because bourbon is a whiskey? We That was brought up front, well, on the board of directors, but we wanted to take it to something that if you're more, if you're used to bourbon and you drink whiskeys like scotch, beautiful expression, but if you're just into whiskeys and maybe you just drink Jack Daniels or Maker's Mark, you just say bourbon and whiskey because we're going to try to get outside of bourbon. And that was the intent. But we knew that it is redundant. Great. Okay. And so whose idea was it to get on Facebook and to create a larger group? Um, that was mine. Okay. It was basically, I think I wanted, just want to get the group together. I just put it up there and I just said, hey guys, I've done it. And so, how long were you guys in operation and were you doing live tastings at that point no. before COVID? No. Not at all. Vadim, he was the one after COVID kind of locked us all down, uh, approached me and said this would be a great idea. And I, I said the virtual tastings, I said, it, if, if you want to handle it, you want to do it, by all means, please do. It sounds like it will be incredible content for our members. So answering your question, it we were doing bottle shares. We would get together. Uh, bottle shares when you get together with your friends, your buddies, you go, mm -hmm. you throw something on the grill, you get some food, you bring some of your favorite bottles that you want to share with everybody. You, they may not have it. And so you, we were doing that several times, and I was experiencing just these beautiful, gorgeous expressions, bottles that I never knew existed. And so it was the one thing about the whiskey aficionados, the people that follow this, they're so generous and they're so giving. With, right. their, with very expensive acquisitions. So it, there was this sense of community from the very beginning. And I think all of the board of directors in the group wanted to nurture that. And we had no idea how much so that there, how much of a interest in being part of a group there was in Southern California and particularly Los Angeles. So we were doing, and we were growing at a steady pace, but it wasn't until COVID hit us that I think that we released our membership. It was maybe three, maybe six or 700 by the end of 2020. But right now we have over 1,600 members. Uh, we have them in multiple countries. We have a lot of regular participants in Vadim's virtual tastings that are on the East Coast and, have say, and say that they have not been able to find 
a virtual tasting experience similar to ours. Now they, they have to go and source all of their own product because we can't mail anything and we have to do a nice right. little delivery system, but they do it and they sign on and they, they have a great time. That's awesome. So before COVID, you were just doing these little barbecue bottle shares with how many people you think? 20? It would, be, it would range anywhere from 15 to 30. Okay. And now on average, your online virtual tastings, Vadim, how many people do you think, or how many do you cap it at? Or do 50 you cap to 60 is our, is our cap, essentially. Anybody's welcome to join. We, we limit it to about 50 active participants. Just to, The whole point is we want to keep it intimate enough to where people can ask questions and we don't want it to be a whiskey festival where it's just a bunch of faces and nobody actually gets a personal connection with, with the host. Right. So 50. David, how did you and Vadim meet and how did the two of you decide that this is how you wanted to take the society? I have a picture of when he and I first met. He was in a Santa hat. Oh, great. And standing behind the wine bar at Pavilions Burbank. And what were you pouring, Vadim? I was working for Diageo at the time. And I, I believe that tasting was, I was doing a tasting for Don Julio when okay. uh, Pavilions brought in their own private cast. A of great Julio. whiskey. <laughs> for, for those of you out there, it's tequila. That's what's funny. We could say it was Don Julio and Johnny Walker in, in one event because we did those as well. Right. But yeah, David and I met as I was pouring samples. And I remember it was David and James Gates that came up to me and they were lingering a little longer than someone who's just having a sample should linger. And they start talking to me and they're super friendly. They're like, hey, we have this group, you should join. And the position in the industry, of course, you're viewed as a brand ambassador and everybody wants to be your friend. And at that point, I'd been in the whiskey industry for a few years and I'd been in, in a ton of groups. But when David says that they just did bottle shares, he's being very modest. I remember checking out the, the caliber of the people in the group and just how friendly everyone was. And the first event I went to was a tasting for Westland at one of the founders' houses. And it was 30, 50 people there. Hey, Matt the host. I don't think Matt Hoffman actually attended that one. I think it was their national brand ambassador. But I walk into this gorgeous house yeah. and it's beautiful. Everyone's dressed nice. David's putting out prosciutto. There's bottles on the table. And I'm rubbing shoulders with, oh, this guy owns a liquor store. This guy owns this guy owns that. Just a, a different level of people and everyone's super friendly and gracious and the, the national brand ambassador shows up and he's like, oh yeah i just flew in from new york for this and i'm flying out after this and i remember the host made a, a brisket and so delicious flew food in for a bottle and, share at somebody's backyard with the yeah and yes. he ended up he ends up doing a, a private class private lesson about what is westland we try and we tried the the their core three line and and we think that's it and then a few members John Debney and the others are like, oh, I, by the way, I have this Gariana expression. It's limited. And I'm just going to put it on the table. Ooh. Have as much as you like. Enjoy. So we ended up, I think, with three different Garianas. And uh, the brand leaves. And that's when the fun begins. And David pulls out a Yamazaki 18. As it always does. David pulled out a, an E.H. Taylor Amaranth of the Gods. So all these bottles start showing up just out of nowhere. And people are like, oh, no, don't drink his. You got to try mine. You, I have the seller edition of Glenn Livet, 19 year old wow. cast strength. This was from the 1990s. No, don't listen to him. Try this one. Try this. And, and just they're trying to flex, but in a very inviting and friendly way. You have to try this. It's not just, oh, check out this bottle. You can't have any. It's, you have to try mine, please. I think, and, and Vadim is very generous, but he's correct. The people do want to bring the things that they have really enjoyed. Or I, I would say through COVID, I have amassed a certain level of collection that I am waiting to share at bottle shares. So things that you know, I look at and I say, I just don't want to sit there and drink them by myself. There's, I want to have, I want to sit down, I say, hey, what do you think? Let's talk about it. And it is a very high level of participation, sharing, and People just want to have fun. I keep saying that people do just want to have fun. And it's it's been spectacular. I, I really want to give Vadim, I want to introduce what he's done for our group that will be formally known as the Los Angeles Bourbon and Whiskey Society. But what Vadim did in the very beginning is done, and he did it you know, six, eight months before everybody really started getting into it. I think he saw an opportunity. He presented it to us. We embraced it and he ran with it. And so with the with his virtual tasting society, his group, 
and being able to pivot and move and provide the infrastructure and the coordination and just do an amazing amount of work to coordinate these tastings and these brand ambassadors or the distillers or the master distillers and to bring these people live via Zoom to all of our homes. And he's done, I think, Vidim over 70 at this point. Is that correct? So. And I, that was what really drove our, our growth and our membership. But it's also been able to provide, Carrie, an opportunity for us to be somewhat selective on who we have in the group. We have to ask a lot. We ask a lot of questions just to see if they're qualified. We try to protect our members against people who log in with fake Facebook accounts to try and sell us or sell our members who knows what. Right. And so we're... As a, that's probably one of the things I didn't anticipate was going to be as big a job as it is to yeah, administer I, that. I did notice you guys had a couple more questions than most groups that I've tried to join. I'm like, oh, wow, it's security here. It's like crazy. And when I first recognized you guys on, on the beat, I'm in several clubs in the L.A. area. And I was on a Zoom call with one of those clubs. And one of our members was also dual tasting with our club and your club. And I was like, who's got, what's this other club you're talking about? I was like, oh, I'm gonna have to check it out. Thank you. Guys, thank you so much. This has been fabulous. I am so glad that you were the first part of our club corner. And uh, I look forward to bringing on other clubs in the future. And for those out there listening, if you have a club and you want to be featured on the show, we are more than happy to publicize any club that is drinking whiskey and wants to be a part of this great whiskey lifestyle. So Cheers. Thank you, Carrie. Cheers. For show notes on today's podcast, please visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's stories in this episode's blog post. As always, you'll see upcoming topics, a guest roster, and links to past shows. Sign up to become a VIP member of Spirits of Whiskey. With your membership, you'll have access to listen to our series, The Malting Floor, be able to watch extra video content related to past episodes, and you'll enjoy access to our new web series, Tales from the Still. To learn how, visit our website and click on the pop-up button. If you run a whiskey club, or if you're a member of one, and you'd like your work featured in the Spirits of Whiskey Club Corner, send us an email via our website contact form, or leave us a voice message on our anchor page. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Spirits of Whiskey is produced by First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are heard.